Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We have been talking about the doctrines of grace for several weeks now, and we are on the fourth of those doctrines. We have been talking about God's irresistibility, and really God's irresistibility comes down to the fact that he's God, which means he has all power, and you're you. And since he has all power, that means you have no power. So whatever God determines to do in time and history actually gets done. And therefore, it is impossible to conclude that God could desire the salvation of any human being and then would leave it up to that human being to decide whether they would accept or reject his grace. I just find that impossible to imagine. Certainly, if it was my enterprise, if it was something I was doing and I had all the power, I wouldn't leave it up to somebody else to foil my plan. And since God is a whole lot smarter than I am, whatever he does... It is what he has chosen to do, what he intends to do, what he is determined to do. Since before the foundation of the world, he doesn't change. Therefore, his intention, his plans, and the names he wrote in Lamb's Book of Life, none of that can change. And so, therefore, those people that he is determined to save are going to be saved. And when I came to understand that, I don't know, 30, 31 years ago, when I came to understand that, it was a tremendous relief to me. Because if you're anything like me, then like David said, your sin is always before you. You always know every moment of your waking life, you're aware of your own rebellion against God. And sometimes when I get too involved in my own flesh, I start thinking, how could God save someone like me? There's just no way that God could be gracious to somebody like me because I just don't deserve his grace. And then I remember that the definition of grace means kindness from God to people who don't deserve it, who can't deserve it. If you could deserve it, that would be a payment, a debt, and not actually grace. So I'm a grace preacher here at Grace Christian Assembly. Our website is Salvation by Grace because we talk about grace a lot. I make whole sentences out of the word grace. I talk about grace, 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 grace. Because if you take away the grace message from the Christian message, then you're left with nothing but 
you got to do the work and God is a judge and he's going to judge your work and you're all going to fail and nobody has any hope. Grace is what gives Christianity its hope. The very center of Christianity is the grace of God that gives to undeserving sinners the things that they couldn't possibly earn. And so, I refuse to believe again that God would take that very element, that very thing, that grace of God that is the center of the whole salvation experience, and then he would leave that grace in the hands of the very wretched sinners who don't think that they're good enough or deserving enough or that a God like him could never love somebody as wretched as them, I refuse to believe that God would then say, okay, I'm going to leave it up to you then whether you accept or reject my grace. Because the first time you have a bad day and you start realizing your own wretchedness, you're going to conclude that God couldn't save somebody like you and you would therefore reject his grace. And so we say that his grace is irresistible. And that was the point of contention all those years ago at the Synod of Dort. The students of Jacob Arminius argued that God's grace was necessary for salvation. They recognized that men were sinful and therefore grace was necessary, but in order to defend human free will, they also argued that humans could reject the grace of God. But really, as you look at the Bible, what you discover is absolutely everything necessary for your full and complete redemption and salvation is, in fact, a gift from God. There is no part of your salvation that is relying on you. Instead, everything necessary is provided. Last week, I tried to demonstrate that while loving God is an absolute necessity, you couldn't do it unless God first loved you, opened up your heart and your mind to his word so that you could then love him. And that's what the Bible says here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That is a wonderful, marvelous demonstration of God's love, but our love for God is a response to the fact that God first loved us. It all began with the love of God graciously giving love so that we could understand love, so that we could then, in response, sacrificially love him and the saints of God in response to his love. And then I said last week, it is absolutely necessary, it is absolutely demanded from God that you repent. And the definition of repentance that I offered was it means turning 180 degrees, it means turning from yourself toward God. Turning from your own self-justification to justification through faith turning from your own sense of willfulness and completeness to understanding your utter dependency on God. And you are demanded by God to repent, and yet natural men cannot. 
repent, and therefore do not repent, and therefore will not repent. And so God has to give you the ability, the understanding, and the willingness to repent, otherwise you never would. And then I said to you in passing last week that even our faith is something that God has to give us. And that pretty much catches us up to date. See, I couldn't just jump right in this morning with faith is a gift. I had to tell you why that's an important element to everything else we understand and believe about the grace of God. And by the way, it is the fact that faith is a gift that is the guarantee of the next of the doctrines of grace, which is the perseverance of the saints. When we get there, it's going to be kind of axiomatic to you because you're going to realize that if, in fact, it is God who gave you the love, repentance, and faith, if God has gifted you with those things and they were given to you by a God who is irresistible, well, then it's self-evident. It proves itself that you are going to persevere in the faith because, after all, it's not your faith. It is a gift that God gives you. This is a tough one sometimes for people to, to really understand and get a hold of. Yes, it is true, you do believe. You are the one who is the believer. You are the actor in believing. You are the actor in faith. You have the faith. You exercise the faith. But you would not be the one doing that if God didn't first give you the belief and the faith and the love and the repentance. Yes, you repent. Yes, you love. Yes, you have faith in the finished work of Christ. None of which you could do or would do or want to do had God not first given you the ability and the desire to do all three of those things. If that was indeed three, math was never my strong suit. When God gives you the gift of faith, you will then believe in the finished work of Christ. And so that's where self-willed human beings get confused because they do have the experience individually of exercising faith. They have the experience of actually believing. And therefore, they think, well, then that must have come from me. It must have been self-generated. I must have decided to have faith because, after all, it's something I'm doing. And that's why it's important to recognize that the doing of it began with God giving you the ability, the desire, the want to do it, and then you do it. So it still starts with God. God is still the first cause. It is not something that you decided one day. Tom and I met in a church out in Los Angeles that I have referred to many, many times, where we were told that faith is something that you do, you generate, you decide. And the way that it was explained to us was, 
You look at God's batting average. You understand that God's word is genuine. And then you make the, this is the language, leap of faith. You throw yourself on God. That's a decision you make. And then having taken that leap of faith, you then wait to see whether the things that God said actually come true. And they will come true because you took the leap of faith. That means that it began with you. You decided. You determined. You took the leap. You did all that. You did it because you believe that God's word was testable and you were willing to put it to the test. Have I misrepresented any of that? That's what it was. Okay. That, by the way, is what I firmly believed when I left California. So what a wonderful day it was when I actually, let's see, what was that thing? Read the Bible. When I actually paid attention to what the Bible says and came to recognize that faith and repentance and love, hey, it is three, that those three actually do come from God and then we exercise faith, repentance, and love because God has granted us the ability and the desire to do it. So don't be deceived, don't be confused by the fact that you are the one doing it. I mean, you do have faith. You do love God. That's a reality. That's actually in you. You actually do turn from yourself toward God. That is all a reality. And because you only know your own human experience, it can make you feel like you're doing that in reality in time because you decided to do it. It can feel like that to you, but then as you read your Bible and the curtain is pulled back and you understand that God is the first cause of all these things, you recognize that those things you are doing are a gift from God to begin with. And that had he not granted you the love, the repentance, the faith, you would not have ever done any of those left to yourself. You see the difference? The difference is, who gets the praise? The question is, who gets glorified in that? If it is up to you, and you decide, and you do it, and then God is obligated to save you because you chose to do those things, well, then you get the glory. We all have to stand around, look at you, and say, well done you. Very good you. We're... We're mighty proud of you. But if you recognize, if you understand that biblically all of these things are a gift from God, then he gets the praise, he gets the worship, he gets the glory. None of that belongs to you. The very fact that you are doing it is the proof, is the evidence that God is still in the enterprise of saving people and drawing them to himself, but it is still the enterprise, the work of God. Got that? Got it. Okay. So can you prove from the Bible that faith is a gift? Well, the answer is yes. John 6, 44 is the place to start Because first we have to understand that no human being of their own will, of their own flesh, 
ever came to God, ever exercised faith in Christ. John 6, 44, Jesus speaking says, one of those cannot phrases of Jesus. Jesus walked around saying, human beings cannot do certain things. One of the things that human beings cannot do is they cannot have faith in Christ. No one can come to me except the Father which has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So there's your starting level right there. All mankind in their depravity, in their wickedness, there is no man who can come to Jesus. So that eliminates any thoughts, any opinions you may have about how you self-generated that faith. That believing that you do could not have started with you because Jesus has already told you, you can't. And since you can't, you won't, unless, and thank God for the unless, except the Father who sent me draws him. So God, who is the first cause, God, who is the one who is in the enterprise of saving people, has to bring people to Christ. That is the only way that anyone can come to him, because people can't come to me. No man can come except the Father who has sent me draws him, the end result being that he, the powerful one, will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so now knowing that, recognizing that you simply can't, how is it that some of you do? How is it that some people are willing to trust their entire eternity on Jesus Christ and not on their own works or their own goodness, their own self-satisfaction? How is it that people come to faith considering that no man can? Well, Ephesians 2.8 answers that question. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should brag or boast. Dig me, I did it. I have something I can boast about before God because I chose Jesus. I placed my faith in him. I repented of myself, and I took the leap of faith. Well, see, that's all self-aggrandizement. And here Paul writes, it can't be about your works. Because if any part of it, any smidgen of it is about you and your works, you know you, you're an egocentric person, you'll brag, you'll boast. You'll say, that's right, I did it. I'm just better than everybody else. All those people who didn't do it, well, too bad for them because I did it. And that's the way human beings naturally are. So that idea of it being by works, by your will, by your desire, that idea is eliminated. Instead, it is by grace. 
It is by unmerited favor. It is by kindness from God that you don't deserve and can't deserve that you are being saved through faith. And that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Now, the Arminian contingent will tell you that in the Greek language, and this is one of those moments where we do have to look at the Greek just a little bit, here's a basic rule of Greek grammar, and the Greek speakers in the congregation can correct me if I get any of this wrong. But the word that, that pronoun, has to agree with the antecedent of the pronoun. This is the way that the Greek language works, Pronouns have gender, and we don't know anything about that in the English language. We're not worried about making words match in gender. But when you see a pronoun, especially like this, a demonstrative pronoun, it, all that means is that it's demonstrating, it's pointing at something. That, not just anything, but that one in particular, that is what's called a demonstrative <coughs> pronoun. Well, a demonstrative pronoun in the Greek language has to agree with its antecedent in gender and in number. And if you look at Ephesians 2.8, you will see that the word faith, pistos there, is actually in the feminine gender. And the word that is a neutered demonstrative pronoun, which means that it doesn't have a gender. And meanwhile, the word faith does have a gender. That means that the word that cannot be referring to the word faith because they're not connected by gender and number. And so the Arminians will say to you, but look, it can't be saying that faith is a gift because after all, when Paul says that, He's using a neuter demonstrative pronoun. And if he had meant for that to be referring to faith as a gift, he would have used a feminine pronoun. And then they stop right there, content that they have made the argument, and they're pretty much finished at that point. But the rest of the phrase, by grace, that word grace is also in the feminine gender. Salvation and saved, masculine. And therefore, the word that, the neutered demonstrative pronoun, doesn't actually refer to any of the three words, grace or saved or faith. It doesn't point back to any of them, which means Paul didn't know his own language, apparently. But there's this rule in the Greek language where if the pronoun doesn't match the antecedent in gender and in number, that means that what the pronoun is actually pointing back to is the entirety of the previous phrase. The phrase is... By grace, you're saved through faith. And that whole thing, that, is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, 
so you don't boast. In other words, the grace of God, that's not from you. You didn't do that. And salvation, you are saved. That is also that which Paul is pointing to. And faith is part of that that Paul is pointing to. So the salvation, the faith, the grace, all of it collectively as a phrase, none of it is of you because you would boast. Therefore, it's very clear. Unfortunately, it's not as clear in the English language, but it's completely clear. It is transparently clear in the Greek language that Paul just said faith is a gift. You don't believe by generating it yourself. You believe the same way you are a recipient of grace, the same way that you are saved by God. All of that collectively is something that God does. You don't do it. Now, if you want more evidence than that, that faith is a gift, all you have to do is turn to Hebrews 12, and you'll see more of the language of faith Hebrews 12, 2 says, we are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, depending on your translation, you'll notice that that word our is added by the translators. It's in italics in most translations. What the writer of Hebrews actually said is, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Okay, so I've written a couple of books. That means I'm the author of my books. By the way, I also finished my books. So if Erica comes in here one day and she says, look at this book I just wrote. It's called A Brief History of the Future. And I notice she's handing out manuscripts of my book. I'm going to protest against Erica and say, hold on. It turns out I'm the author of that book. Once somebody authors it, it means that they created it. They wrote it. They determined it. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't stop there. He says that, Jesus is both the author and the finisher of faith. So it starts with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. Everything in between sustaining the faith is Jesus. And therefore, we can look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is right now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so, because he is sitting down at the right hand of God at this moment, it means that God approved of everything he did, everything he accomplished. He accomplished it by hanging on the cross in our place as a substitute for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame that he had to go through, and yet he is sat down right now at the right hand of God. Therefore, he can be the one who creates faith, sustains faith, and then finishes faith. 
He is, to my way of thinking, the ultimate example of faith. You want to see faith? You just look at him on the cross. I think that's why the writer of Hebrews goes back to the cross as the evidence that he is the author and the finisher of faith. Though he had been beaten, though he had been mocked, though he had been scourged, though he had been nailed to a chunk of wood, though he had been bled out, though he was pierced with a sword, though he was wearing a thorn of crowns, though people had spit on him, beaten him, plucked out his beard, even though he had gone through all that, he then hung on a chunk of wood in the noonday sun for three hours, dealing with the very wrath of God. God in our place until the sun was darkened and dark clouds came over the place where he was suffering in our place. And yet, after having gone through all that, his final words were, Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. That's faith. That's what faith is. I've told you so many times, the best definition I have ever found for faith is, faith is reckoning the word of God as more true than your circumstances. Because the circumstances of life are going to make you start doubting the word of God. And yet, genuine faith. The actual belief, the actual hope, the actual confidence, the actual looking forward, all of that package that is faith says that the word of God is more true than your circumstances. Jesus underwent horrible, horrible circumstances, circumstances that were predetermined for him by the father. He knew it was coming, which is why at the Garden of Gethsemane, he would say, if it were possible, Take this cup from me. He knew how bad it was going to be. And despite enduring phenomenally bad circumstances, he still, in faith, looked to his father and said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's real faith. He is the very author of faith. He's the one who walked around saying things like, if you had faith as much as a mustard seed, you would tell that mountain to go plant itself in the ocean and it would do it. When he comes back and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah, the Mount of Olives is going to split in half just because of the very touch of the righteous Holy One landing on it. That's faith. He's going to move mountains. He's actually going to literally move mountains. And yet he said, that's what faith is capable of doing. While he was here on the planet, he did marvelous, miraculous things. And then his disciples did miraculous healings. And they always said, it is because of the faith of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus and his power that actually accomplished this. It was faith that was accomplishing these things. But the faith, whether we're talking about the common faith, Paul used that language, the faith that we all have in common, that belief, the religion of Christianity that we all hold in common, or whether we're talking about the believing that accomplishes miraculous things, or whether we're talking about just the endurance of getting through another day by faith in Jesus Christ. All of that is a gift. 
All of that is God-granted. It's not something that human beings naturally do. By grace, you're saved through faith. And that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we walk through this life looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. Okay, it's pretty difficult, given that that's what the Bible says, it's pretty difficult then to argue that faith is something you generate. It's something that you do when the Bible writers have taken the time and the pains to say, no, Jesus, no, it's a gift of God. It's a gift of grace. It's something that is granted to you. And by the way, the opposite is also true. Jesus said, by grace you're saved through faith, but if you don't believe in him, then you're not saved. That's John 3, 18 and 19. You should be familiar with this. It's right behind John 3, 16. People never seem to keep reading. They get to John 3, 16, they stop right there. But John 3, 18 and 19 says, he that believes on him, that's faith. That's the same word in the Greek. It's another form of pistis. Pistis is the noun, faith, pistuo. Believing is the only English word that we have because we don't have the English word Faithing, and we really do need a verb form of the word faith. It just doesn't exist in the English language, and so the translators translated pistuo as believing. But it's the same word. It's the same idea. He that believes on him, in other words, he who believes in Christ, is not condemned. Oh, that's good news. That's really, really good news. Believe in Christ, not condemned. But he that believes not, that's apistus. It's taking that alpha negative and connecting it to the front of the idea of faith. The one who is not believing in him, the one who stands in contrast to those that believe in him and are not condemned, He that believeth not is condemned already. That's kind of harsh language. Except that Jesus, who knew from the beginning who he was going to grant faith to, also knows who he's not going to grant faith to, and therefore they stand condemned, they remain condemned, and their condemnation was determined from the beginning. He that believeth not is condemned already. By the way, notice by that contrast that there is no room in Jesus' thinking. There is no room for a middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no neutrality right in the middle. You either believe in him and are not condemned, or you don't believe in him and you stand condemned already. 
Why do you stand condemned already? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Because they were engaged in evil deeds, they preferred the darkness, thinking that that was a way of hiding their evil deeds. But God knows, and therefore, in their wickedness, they stand condemned already. Okay, now, pull back from that. Think about what Jesus has just said. He has just said that God, from his vantage point of eternity, knows who he's saving and who he's leaving to condemnation. Remember Paul's words, the vessels of grace and the vessels of wrath that are fitted for destruction, made for the purpose of destruction. That is a really sovereign God. That is a God who knows from the beginning what he is going to do. He has already made those determinations from the beginning. And I argue if he has been good to you, if he's been kind to you, then you ought to be praising and worshiping and thanking him every moment of your waking life, considering that he was under no obligation to you and that he chose you and is saving you and drawing you to himself based on nothing more than his good pleasure and astounding grace. Amen. It is just grace that doesn't. Because he's passing by other people. And yet he's saving you. He that believes on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. By the way, that verse is in everybody's Bible. If you have a Bible, that verse is in it. Which means that phrase is in it. That reality from Jesus that if you don't believe in him, you stand condemned already is in every Bible, in every hotel drawer, distributed by any Gideon anywhere. It doesn't matter what language, what translation, you're going to find that reality. It's just that that's such a harsh reality that people ignore it. People try to avoid it. People hang on John 3.16 and then don't go on and read John 3.18 and 19. And they certainly don't write it down on big pieces of poster board and stand in the end zone at football games holding up John 3.18. That's not what they're doing. They're holding up John 3.16 because they think that's the whole story. <laughs> I think Titans, as soon as they open the stadium, big banner. <laughs> Look, only by understanding God's sovereign foreknowledge and predetermination can we rectify Jesus condemning unbelievers without giving them time to listen and decide? He knew that they were never going to come to repentance. He knew that they were always going to hate the light and prefer their evil ways and that they would never change. And why does he know that they're never going to change? Because he knows that all human beings, all mankind are corrupted from the beginning and he knows they're not going to change because he knows he's not going to change them. That's why he knows it. And therefore he can state categorically that they're condemned already. 
On the other hand, the Bible declares that elect sinners bought by Christ's death will indeed follow after Jesus. And they will indeed respond to the call of God. And they will indeed be raised up in newness of life by the power of Christ's resurrection. He knows that as much as he knows those that are condemned already. John 6.37 says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. That's a definite statement. Unlike the condemned already crowd, those people that God gave to me are going to come to me. They definitely are. Why? Because the big topic heading here is irresistibility. If God has decided to save you since before the foundation of the world, if he has given you to his son for his son's glorification so that the act of his own sacrifice is actually going to bear fruit, well then all those that the Father gives to the Son will indeed come to the Son, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. People who don't like the doctrine of the Bible make up silly things that you don't find anywhere in the Bible. I had somebody write to me, oh, I'm going to say three months ago, Sure, go ahead, I'll say that. Three months ago, that's when they wrote to me. It's, I, I don't remember. I'm not good with math. Um, have I mentioned my lack of math skills? And so he wrote, and he was trying to undermine this whole predestinary idea. And he said, so you're saying that if someone wants to be saved, that Jesus will reject them on the basis of no, you can't come with me because you're not elect. You're not chosen. So therefore, I reject you. I wrote back with this verse and said, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is everybody that does indeed come to Christ in faith, he's not going to cast them out. It's just that the coming to Christ does not start with the individual. The reason that any individual comes to Christ is because God gave them to Christ to start with. And then because they were given to Christ, they are indeed going to come to Christ. And all those that come to him, he's not going to cast out. It's a question, again, of it's the same old question. It's repetitiously the same question. It's the same question, who gets the glory? Who started it? Did it start with you? Did you decide? Did you determine that you were going to come to Christ? Or did God give you to Christ and therefore you who are unable to resist that calling and gift of God, you then do indeed come to Christ and he never casts out anybody that does come to him, but then God gets the glory because God started the whole enterprise. He's the one that gave you to Christ to begin with. We, our experience, our human experience as we're walking here on planet Earth is, well, I did it. I came to Christ. And yes, admittedly, in the flesh, that's what it feels like. It feels like I decided, I believed, I had faith, I came to repent, I came to love God, I did that then you have to read your Bible in order to understand 
that while, yes, you did all that, it didn't start with you. It started with God determining that you were going to do that and then empowering you to do that and then gifting you to do that and then you did it. So even though you have the individual experience of I did it, it is God who gave you the desire, the want, the ability to do it in the first place. He's the one that chose you. He's the one that gave you to the Son. That's why you repent. That's why you have faith. That's why you have love for God and the brethren. All those things you have are gifts from God because God from the beginning determined that that's what he was going to do for you as a gift of grace. So who gets the praise? Not you. It's still God. Am I making any sense at all? Oh, yes. Okay. Because I'm trying to be just as clear and pedantic as I can be. We've already read John 10. He that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will not follow but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. That, again, is Jesus himself basically saying, if you're mine, you're coming to me, because you know my voice. How are you going to know his voice? In your sinful depravity, did you just turn around one day and go, hey, that must be the voice of Jesus? No, first you had to have your ears open. First, you had to have your heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. You had to have your eyes open so that you had some comprehension of the word of God. And now when you open the Bible, you actually hear the words of God speaking to you. And you hear the voice of your shepherd calling you as you hear his word going forward. And you didn't have the ability to do any of that until he granted you that ability. All of that, collectively, him saving you by grace, him giving you repentance, him giving you faith, all of that collectively is what's known as being born again. I don't know if you've spent any time around, uh, what shall I call it, Southern Baptist standard Arminianish religion. I don't know what else to call it. I was trying to put a definition on it. But they will tell you, they will holler at you from the pulpit and tell you, you got to get born again. They put a D on the word born for some reason. You got to do it. And they'll holler at you. They'll bellow. They'll yell at you. You got to do it. You got to get you born again. But that entire thing, being born again and everything that comes with it, that regenerative work that God does inside you is a gift of grace that results in repentance and faith and love. And even the born again part, Jesus says, you can't do it. 
you have to be born anothen, a word that means from above. You have to be regenerated from above. Your first birth is not sufficient. Your first birth is not adequate. The fact that you're here means nothing. Nobody owes you nothing. Get over you. The very fact that you're here and that you were born and that you have a birth certificate only means that you're registered to die. <laughs> but you got to be born again in order to have any comprehension of what God has actually done. As he draws you. Jesus said in John 3, 3, Verily, verily, I say to you, Except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't. One of those cannot statements. You have to be born. That's why the word anothen is so important. It is not just born again. It is not just regenerated from what you used to be to something else. But it's important to understand that that regenerative work has to come from outside you. It has to come from above. It has to come from God. And if he doesn't do that for you, if he doesn't give you that gift, there's no way you're seeing the kingdom of God. And that's Jesus talking. He's the one who came down from the Father. He's the one who was always at the right hand of the Father. He knows heaven like you know your living room. He knows heaven. He knows what he's talking about. And he says, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. To the Israelites that were listening to him, to the Jews that he was speaking to, when he says, you won't see the kingdom of God, that really resonates with them because they know that all the prophets of the Old Testament have promised them a coming kingdom in which peace and holiness is going to dwell and that Messiah himself is going to be their everlasting king and the nations of the earth are all going to flow to them. I mean, that's something they're all looking forward to. And he says, you're never going to see that. You're never going to experience that unless you're born from above. Picking up at verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to you, you must be born Again. So, can you do that? Can you just decide, well, I'm going to make myself regenerated. I'm going to make myself born again. I'm going to make myself have faith. I'm going to make myself repent. I'm going to make myself turn toward God and love God more than I love myself. All of those, collectively, you can hear now how ridiculous it sounds to say, you got to do that in your flesh, by your own mind, in your own corrupt, evil little silly self. You have to determine that you are going to do all those things. And the Bible just keeps saying, you can't do that. God has to do that for you as a gift of grace. In John 1, verses 12 and 13, this, I think, is kind of the death knell to the whole idea of you got to do it. You got to rev it up. You got to do it by your flesh. You have to exercise your free will. John writes 
in John 1, speaking of Jesus. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. He gave. He gave them the power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. I think we have established already where that belief came from. But then just to be really, really clear about it, John continues, who were born not of blood. That means it's not about your genealogy. It's not about your nationality. It's not about your race. It's not about your family lineage. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Could it be any more clear than that? Those that are born not of the will of the flesh, not by self-determination, not by their own free will, not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man. Not satisfied with just not the will of the flesh. He then goes the rest of the way and says, it's not for a man to do. It's not a man's decision that results in the regeneration and salvation of people, he then makes it as clear as he can with three little words. How were they born? But of God. And right there, that, that just drove a stake through the heart of the Arminian notion that it is up to you to do the deciding, to do the determining. You can't do it. I get two more points I want to make, and then I think we're done with the topic of God's irresistibility. When Jesus walked on the planet, just think about Jesus for just a moment. Think about the authority that Jesus exercised and demonstrated while he was here on the planet. He changed the nature of animals when he rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, he sat on a donkey that he said no man had ever sat on before, and yet, despite the fact that this donkey had not been broken, and donkeys are stubborn, and donkeys don't like people sitting on them, they have to be trained, they have to be taught, and he sat down on it, and it gently rode him into Jerusalem. He changed the nature of that donkey instantly, automatically. He changed the nature of fish when he caused them to just jump into his net. You remember when Peter and his cohorts had been fishing all night, Jesus shows up on the shore, says, children, do you have anything to eat? You got anything? You got kind of thing? No, we've been out here all night. We got nothing. He says, cast out on the other side of the boat. Like there's this huge difference between the left side and the right side of the boat. The water underneath is all the same. Okay, at your word. They throw the net out, and they can't drag the net to shore because of the number of fish that are in it. So he changed the nature of fish. Fish don't like to get caught, but he made them jump into the net. He changed the nature of water when he changed the nature of water to become wine. And not just wine, really, really good wine. So much so that the master of the, the wedding feast said, what have you done? Most people bring out the good wine first, 
and then after people are well drunk they bring out the cheap stuff you save the good stuff for last that means that it was really really good wine and Jesus changed the nature of water and made it into wine Jesus changed the nature of storms wind and rain He's sleeping in the bottom of a boat while that boat is being rocked and thrown about by all these waves and wind. They come to him and say, Master, don't you care that we perish? He gets up, walks up onto the deck of the ship, speaks to the storm and says, Peace be still, and it lays down like a puppy at his feet. He changed the nature of that storm. He changed the nature of a budding fig tree and he caused it to wither and die by his word. He just spoke to it, and it died. I think he would have changed the nature of stones when he said to the Pharisees, if these people were quiet, these rocks and stones would cry out. And I actually wish that they had been quiet so he could do the rock and stone miracle. I would have liked to have seen that. But I think he was saying, I have the ability. I can do this. I can raise people up out of these stones and out of these rocks. So if he has that kind of ability to change animals, to change storms, to change nature and trees, if he's capable of changing rocks, well, then there's no difference when Christ comes to work on the heart of any individual. He can change it because he's already demonstrated his ability to change everything within his creation. Everything in his creation is subject to whatever he wants it to be and do. And therefore, when he comes to change your heart, your heart's getting changed. Because nothing else in his creation had the ability to resist. And neither do you. When the sovereign Lord speaks, his creation actually obeys him. When he decrees that a man is going to be changed, the man is powerless to actually refuse. It's wholly incomprehensible. That the God who spoke the universe into existence, who sits established on his throne in heaven, who declares the end from the beginning and calls things that are not as if they were, it's impossible for me to believe that he's been handcuffed by the will of the creature. As if the will of the creature is somehow superior to the will of the almighty sovereign whose entire creation obeys him without being able to resist. So if that's the case, then men are powerless. Men are incapable of resisting when God decides to be gracious to them. And aren't you glad about that? Because let's be real. Let's talk about Micah for a moment, even though we could talk about anybody else in the room. Paul with his groovy haircut. We could talk about Leon. We could, we could definitely talk about Kellen. We could talk about anybody in the room. But let's be honest. If God was not irresistible and he left it up to you, you'd resist. Because that's your nature. You're contrary by nature. You're sinful and depraved by nature. If you could resist God, you would resist God. That's what you're like. 
To conclude that God would choose to save some men and Christ would bear the pain of separation from his father for those men and then their ultimate fate would be left in their own sinful, ignorant, rebellious hands is to call God both powerless and foolish. If God decrees the salvation of a man, that man's going to be saved. He's going to acknowledge his unrighteousness. He's going to repent. He's going to recognize his need of a savior. He's going to look to Christ because he was given to Christ. And just like Jonah, he's going to conclude salvation is of the Lord. It's not to do with me. That person's going to be recreated, thank God, into the image of God's son. That's that's what we're already told in Romans 8, that God predestined people to be conformed to the image of his son. We're going to be recreated into the image of his son. We seek his will and we seek the pleasure of the father. We're going to be reborn. We're going to trade in these filthy, self-righteous rags and we're going to put on clean, pure robes of holy faith. Wow. <laughs> I... Love that kind of Bible language. We're going to believe on Christ's finished work and in the God who sent him, knowing that they are our hope, our security, our guarantee of eternal life. Big picture. We're going to finish on a big picture. The big picture is God is restoring everything, recreating everything, bringing everything back to the way that he intended for it to be. But his intention originally was to let that perfection be corrupted so that his son would be the savior of people, so that his son would be lifted up and glorified above everyone. And then he gave a people to glorify Christ because of how much he loved his son. So we are just simply participants in the grand scheme, the grand plan of God. It goes this way. Adam was born spiritually alive, and then he sinned, and he became dead at the moment of his rebellion. That's what God said to him. The day that you eat of that fruit, of that tree, you're going to die. He went from spiritually alive to instantly dead at the moment of his rebellion. And in the exact same way then, elect sinners are born in the flesh spiritually dead because we all share in Adam's sin. But then by the Holy Spirit and the infusion of the Spirit, instantly we become spiritually alive. That's a grand and a glorious reality and promise. Adam was created physically perfect. He would have lived and lived. He had access to the tree of life. But his sins began to physically decay and ultimately kill him. In the exact opposite way. Sinners are born in these decaying bodies. From the moment we're born, we begin dying. Sickness, disease, plague us for our whole lives right up until our ultimate physical demise. But that same quickening spirit of God who raised us from our spiritual blindness is also going to raise our mortal bodies 
promising us that he's going to resurrect us again to physical perfection so that the redeemed of the Lord get a new and perfect body and eternal spiritual physical life in the new Jerusalem. Think about that. That's what you're in the middle of right now. As you're walking through your dopey little life right now, you're actually participating in the grand scheme of God who started everything with life and with direct connection with himself. He walked and talked with Adam. In the new Jerusalem, there's going to be no sunlight no sun or moon or planets because God is going to be the light. We're going to commune with God. Everything, including the pottery and the bridles on the horses, is all going to be holiness to the Lord. He's going to make us what he originally made Adam. In fact, the end of Revelation, Revelation 22 says, we're going to have access to the tree of life. That's how much he's going to restore us. So all that being the case, I refuse to believe. No, I'm going to say that clearer. The Bible does not allow us to believe that it is up to us to accept or reject the grace of God that will regenerate us and bring us to faith and hope and repentance and confidence. All those things are gifts from God. And so we love him in response to the great love where which he loved us. Got that? Just listen to Ephesians 1, 17 to 20. This is Paul kind of understanding and dealing with, grappling with these great eternal truths that we're talking about. He writes that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. My hope for you is that we indeed receive that spirit of wisdom, that we understand the revelation and the knowledge of him, that our eyes are opened, our understanding is enlightened so that we may know what is the hope of his calling, all of it, start to finish. Grace, 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 grace. We're going to sing, hallelujah, what a savior.
Steve, if you would. for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.